long this morning, and we've already taken a few minutes for the Lord's Supper, so I'm not going to read our passage this morning. I'll just go through it as we um, teach through the book of Amos, chapter 8. <clears throat> so I, I want to kind of give us a, a context for Amos, chapter 8. Because there's not a whole lot to get excited about in Amos chapter 8 in the way of good news or a joyful message or something uplifting or something encouraging. In fact, Amos chapter 8 is the climax of God's judgment and God's punishment of Israel. And uh, and, and so I want to kind of give you a picture of what's happening up until Amos chapter 8. So Amos was not from Israel. The nation had been divided into two countries. King Solomon had taxed the people heavily, and his son came to the throne, and his son's name was Rehoboam. And the elders came before Rehoboam and said, are you going to be as harsh as your father was? And he said, I'm going to be twice as bad. You haven't seen anything. My dad taxed you a lot, but I'm going to tax you more. You thought you were whipped with cords? I'm going to whip you with scorpions. So they, they came back and they said, you know what? We don't need the kingdom of Judah. We've got our own king. We have our own kingdom. So the kingdom of Israel went through a civil war, and it was divided. The northern kingdom was known as Samaria. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. The Judean kingdom kept a Davidic king on its throne throughout its history. The northern kingdom would have coup after coup that would slay the king. There would be conspiracies. The longest a reigning family was the family of Jehu. Jehu's family reigned for four generations, which was a unique thing in the nation of Israel. And the only reason they did is Elijah promised that if you will execute the prophets of Baal, I will ensure that you can reign for four generations. That was the longest family reign in the northern kingdom. So now we we get to the the period of Amos, which is about 760 years before Christ. And Israel had a corrupt worship. They had made golden calves. They called them Baal or Baal. And they had two worship centers. One was in the city of Dan. The other one was in the city of Bethel. Gilgal had become a religious site as well. It was a historically significant place for the children of Israel because that's where Joshua had camped before they came into the land of Israel. And they rolled the reproach of Egypt off of them. And so Gilgal was another significant place. And these places became corrupt places of worship, idolatry, even sexual immorality that was a part of their worship. And all of this is condemned in the book of Amos. But politically, the country was stronger than it had been since the time of Solomon. 
they had expanded their borders all the way to a city called Hamath, which was near the Assyrian Empire, all the way to the Gulf of Arabah, which is along the Mediterranean. So they had expanded their borders. So politically, they were doing well, but spiritually, they were so sick. And not only were they sick spiritually, they had become greedy. They had exploited the poor. In this book of Amos, he says, you sell the poor for a pair of shoes. He says, your worship, I, I hate it. I despise your feast days. I don't listen to the noise of your music, Amos chapter 5. Take it away from me. I don't want it. They were just going through the motions of religion, but at the same time, exploiting the poor, perverting justice to the needy, and they were filled with arrogance, and they were filled with pride. We have one glimmer of hope in the whole book, and that's in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Amos says, don't seek Bethel. That's literally the house of God. That was such a special place. That's where Jacob had the vision of Jacob's ladder. He says, surely this is Bethel. Surely this is the house of God. And by the time of Amos, he says, don't seek Bethel. It's going to come to nothing. Don't seek Gilgal. I'm going to destroy it. Don't go to Beersheba. Don't think all of your religious sites are going to have any bearing on your relationship with me because you're just walking through the motions. You're playing church. You're playing Christianity, but it's not from your heart. He says, I would rather than all of your sacrifices, I would rather that you let righteousness rain down like water and justice like a mighty stream. This is what God really wants. And then you get to chapter 6, and he says, I, I, I did everything I could in the way of chastisement to get you to come back to me. I sent cleanness of teeth. In other words, you didn't have anything to eat. I sent one city had rain, another city didn't, and they had to come together, and you still didn't have enough water, and yet you didn't return to me. I put the plagues of Egypt on you, and yet you still didn't return to me. I rained down like Sodom and Gomorrah, and I snatched some of you like a firebrand out of the fire. And still, you haven't returned to me. And so then you get to chapter 7, and you have a series of four visions. And these four visions culminate in chapter 8, where God says, I'm done. I am finished. Have you ever felt that way in a situation in your life where you said, I'm through with it? I am done. You know what it takes to get you to that point. Hopefully it takes a lot. For some of you mamas and papas out here, hopefully you're a long-suffering mom, a long-suffering dad or grandpa or uncle or whatever or a co-worker. But when you get to that point, you're fed up, right? I remember my dad saying that all the time. I'm fed up with you kids. We'd be driving down the road and, man, this is before it wasn't politically correct to smack kids up, you know, but I don't know how we didn't crash. I mean, he'd be reaching back there, we'd be hiding behind each other. But my dad just said, I've had it. And when he had enough, he pulled the car off the side of the road. Whoa. Chapter 8, God's pulling off the side of the road here. And he said, I'm done. The first vision locusts, consuming, eating everything. 
And not only that, it was after the king's mowing. In other words, the king got to mow his fields. He gathered in all of his crops. And then the nation of Israel. And the locusts came and said, I'm going to devastate everything, and the people are going to have absolutely nothing. And what does Amos do? I mean, if you read Amos 1 through 7, it's remarkable that Amos says, please, Lord, forgive. That's a godly person. And what did God do? God relented. And then Amos sees this vision of fire consuming everything, and it devours the territory, the holy land, God's people. And he says, oh, cease, God. Jacob is such a small, little, insignificant nation among all the world. What will they do without you intervening and stopping this judgment? And God relents. And then in the third vision, God shows Amos a plumb line. And a plumb line is what we would call today a level. It makes sure that that wall is up and down. It's vertical without any wavering one way or the other. Because if you're going to build, and you're going to build a solid structure, you want an objective point to look to, to pull your lines off of. And God said, my plumb line is my word. And I'm going to measure you by my word, and I am going to destroy your places of worship because they don't line up with what I've asked you to do. And then in chapter 8, you get the fourth vision. And the fourth vision is this basket of summer fruit. The word for summer in the Hebrew language is pronounced kates. The word for end in the Hebrew language is pronounced kates. They are spelled slightly different, but it's a play on words. He says, Amos, I am going to show you one more vision. What do you see, Amos? Amos says, I see a basket full of summer fruit, and it's ripe. It's about to spoil. It's about to go off. It was ripe. And then Amos says this, I will not pass by them anymore. The end has come upon my people Israel. It's over. I'm done. And the worst thing in this whole chapter, chapter 8, the worst thing that I think that I see in this chapter is when we get down to verse 11. So if you're open to Amos, go to verse 11 with me. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Now, God had sent famine for chastisement. He'd given them cleanness of teeth when they didn't have enough food. But God says, this famine's going to be different. I will send them a famine, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Can you imagine having God's word withdrawn from you. No message from God. We are so privileged today, aren't we? I have got five different Bibles in my home. I've got one in the Old Testament in Hebrew. I've got a New Testament of Greek. I've got two Greek New Testaments. I've got an interlinear 
Greek and Hebrew, Old Testament, New Testament. I've got three study Bibles. Anytime I want to hear from God, all I have to do is come to this book. What a joy, what a privilege that we can have a sure word from God. You want comfort? We have the word of God. You want encouragement? We have the word of God. You want direction for your life when you have to make a major decision? You have the word of God. You want to share with a loved one how they can go to heaven? We have the word of God. God doesn't speak through prophets any longer. We're told this in Hebrews chapter 12. He spoke in time past to our fathers through prophets, through various ways and sundry times and diverse manners. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. You want a perfect revelation of all that God is like and all that God does? All you have to do is look to the person of Jesus. And you have a perfect and complete and full revelation of God. We don't need any more. And God had sent them prophet after prophet. And you know what they told Amos? They told Amos, don't prophesy here. This is the king's sanctuary. You go back south where you belong. We're not going to listen to you. Don't prattle any longer here. We don't want it. And there's a spiritual principle for all of us to take heed. And that is when God's word comes to us and we don't take this Bible serious, when we don't take it and engraft it, as it says in James, into our life, when we don't feast on it, as it says in 1 Peter, we don't desire it as a sincere milk of the word of God, you know what's going to happen? You lose interest and God gives you over to what you want. And that is what has happened to Israel before the Assyrian Empire comes in and destroys them. Prophet after prophet had come. We don't want it. And God says, you know what? You don't want it? I'm going to withdraw it from you. While you have the light, Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 36, walk in the light lest the darkness overtake you. In Mark chapter 4, take heed with what you hear for what measure you use, it will be measured to you again. And even what you do have, I will add it. And what you don't have, I will take it away if you don't use it. So a spiritual principle in Amos chapter 8 is it's either feast or famine. Either we take God's word and we hunger for it and we thirst for it, or we neglect it, and even what we do have will be taken away. Now there are some reasons for Israel's rejection for the word of God. And when we answer that question, we will find the same answers for our lives. Why do we find the Word of God sometimes not a priority? Well, let's look at the things in, in the book of Amos. So I'm just going to quote some of these verses from Amos. But one of the things that caused them not to hear the Word of God is they had just gotten comfortably, I'm sorry, they had gotten comfortable spiritually. When you get spiritually comfortable and you're no longer challenged, you're no longer convicted, you no longer tremble at the word of God, you're in danger of God withdrawing truth and light from you. This is what Amos said, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Zion was another name for Jerusalem. It was a name for the temple mount 
where God was to be worshipped, and they had gotten comfortable in Zion. So the same thing in our lives. When we get comfortable in our own religious experience, and we stop hungering, we stop thirsting, we stop challenging ourselves to memorize, to study, to know the Word of God, we're in danger. The next thing in this chapter of Amos, it says, Woe to you who put off the day of doom. I'll deal with it later. The attitude of procrastination. Yeah, I'm going to read through the Bible. I'm going to have my devotions, but I'm going to do it late tonight. Well, I'm too tired. I'll do it tomorrow morning. Well, I, I, I'm in a hurry. I've got to get to work. Well, I really don't have time at break time because the boss wants me to do such as. Woe to you who put it off. Procrastination, I will deal with it some other time. The third reason we see in the book of Amos why the word of God was being withdrawn, it says they lay down on the beds of ivory, they sing to string instruments, they drink wine, they anoint themselves with the best ointments, but they are not grieved over the affliction of my people. A wrong set of priorities. That's when we lose interest in the word of God. A fourth reason we see in the book of Amos, the people could not wait until their religious observances were done. Look at chapter 8 with me, and we'll, we'll see their attitude towards spiritual things. Go down to verse 5, Amos 8, 5. Let's go back to 4, first of all. Okay, it says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy. That was the Israelites that day. And make the poor of the land fail, saying, this is what their attitude was, when will the new moon be passed so that we can sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be done so that we can trade wheat? And when we do our trading, we're going to make the ephah small and the shekel large. What were they doing with that ephah and the shekel? They were falsifying the scales. They were, so to speak, they, they, they were doing one of these numbers. They, they, they had their, their scale in front of them. They brought in their wheat, and they kind of put their foot on it. It says, oh, this is how, how, how much uh, uh, that, that you're giving me, and, and, uh, and this is what it's worth. And so when they paid what it's worth, they, 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 made, they exchanged the, the small one, and, and so that they were, it's like, I'll give you a better illustration. So when you and I go into the grocery store, and we used to get a, a, a jar of, of peanuts, and we were paying X amount for that jar, and, and we walk in and we say, man, they raised the price. But not only did they raise the price, they put a false bottom in it. You ever seen those things? And so the container only contains about two-thirds of what it used to contain, but the price is about a third higher, and they're jipping you on both sides. That's what they were doing. They said, and we can't wait until the new moon's done. What was the new moon? Every single month, the Israelites followed a lunar calendar. And at every new moon, they would blow the trumpets. They would come together for a festival. They would come together for joy. And they would worship God. And they would remember how great God was. And every Sabbath day, God had intended for them to rest to enjoy fellowship with the Lord, and to bring their sacrifices. And they got to the point where they said, you know what, we just want to hurry up and get this done with. I'm glad you all put up with a long-winded preacher. 
Because none of you are sitting here, man, I can't wait until he's done because I got a football game to go home and watch. Or I, my, I got a roast in the oven. Or, man, I, I got skis in the back of my car. Would you hurry up and shut up? But that's kind of their attitude. Can you just get this worship done so I can go do my own things? And when we have an attitude like that, God's liable to take the truth away from us. Sin will eventually ripen. We can't play with God and think we can get away with it. The writer of Proverbs says this, can a man take coals into his bosom and not get burned? You can't play with sin and think that one day it's going to escape you. No. Listen to this, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. And so Amos is saying, what do you see? I, and Amos says, I see this bag, basket of fruit, and it is so ripe. It is time for judgment. They had gotten away with judgment for 200 years, and Amos calls them into account here. The word of God is so important for us, in our lives, because it puts the day of execution at a stay. It puts judgment on God's long fingers, the Irish say. The Word of God is so powerful. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to dividing asunder soul and spirit. I don't even know the difference between soul and spirit. Somebody asked me, is man a trinity or is man a dichotomy? I don't know. We have a body, we have a soul, and yeah, we have a spirit. What's the difference between soul and spirit? I, I couldn't really tell you, to be honest. But the Word of God can tell. It can divide between those things that are just so, so minute. It can divide between the joints and the ligaments. It's a discerner of your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight. Neither is there anyone who is not ache naked before the eyes to one to whom we have to give an account. I, I remember living in Ireland. And an Irish man used to run with me. And we would talk about the Bible. And one day we were out running and he began to ask some really difficult questions. And I tried to answer them the best that I could. And finally I said, Amen, it, it just comes down to this. It comes down to faith. What are you going to trust? And I'll never forget, he starts to pray. Uh, third, first I thought he was talking to me. And I looked over. No, he's, he's just looking straight ahead. And he's, he's talking. He says, I'm on a spiritual journey right now. And he says, I am going to follow Jesus and I'm going to put my faith in him. And then he, he blessed himself like a good Catholic would. About a week later, he came into my lab, and he says, Patrick, he says, I don't know what's going on in my life. He says, ever since that run, he says, I feel so convicted about the way I treat my coworkers. He says, there was a guy who, who got the promotion that was my promotion. He says, I hated him. He says, I wouldn't even talk to him. He says, this morning, I was praying for him. 
And I took this verse and read it to him. And he says, that's what's happened in my life. But that's the power of God's word. And when we read his word, it keeps us from coming under that ripe judgment of God because we're sensitive. The word ripen is the same word to come to an end. And the people were saying, do not prophesy against Israel. They were saying, God, don't, we don't want to hear your word. The result of ripening sin is the loss of joy. That is the result of sin. And it's replaced with grief. Look at the, the verses with me here in, in, in chapter 8 and verse 3. This is the result when sin becomes ripe. The songs of the temple, they will be wailing in that day. They ought to have been joyful. There's many dead bodies, and they will be thrown out in silence. When we put temporal pleasures ahead of living for God, we already read those verses 4 through 8, so we're not going to read them again. Verses 7 and 8. God is bound by his righteous character to judge sin. 7 and 8. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will not forget any of their works. Well, what were their works? Well, they were falsifying the scales. They were quick to get rid of the Sabbath and the new moon so they could get to their own businesses. And look, look at verse 6. That, that we might buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will not forget their works. So God's righteous character demands that sin be judged. Point number two is the regret of lost opportunity, 9 through 14. Judgment, and this is very interesting here. Judgment is unexpected and judgment is unnatural. Verses 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noonday. Something that's just so unnatural. Now, I don't believe that this is a prophecy about the apocalypse at the end of the age. It, it, it could be. Many times the prophets foreshadow the day of the Lord, and there's a future fulfillment of the day of the Lord. But we've got to go back in time. Who is Amos speaking to? What was Amos proclaiming to these people? He was saying the Assyrian Empire is going to come and destroy you. Now, there is an application for us. When we say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. So there is an application. But what he is basically saying to the people of Israel, it's going to happen at an unnatural time. When you least expect it, the sun is going to go down at noonday. The Assyrians are going to come and they're going to wipe you out. Not only is it going to be unexpected, it's going to be unnatural. I will darken the earth in the broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Those were external signs of grief and mourning. Now let's get down to the, the heart of this passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will send a famine, not on the land, famine of bread, nor of thirst of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. The symptoms were diagnosed. They were indifferent to people, and they were irreverent toward God. So 
when I, before I close, I'm going to kind of to draw this to, to a finish here. I know Amos chapter 8, we're book, reaching through the book of Amos. It just happened where we're going. I promise you the next book's going to be a little bit more encouraging. We're going to go through the book of Philippians. It's all about joy and rejoicing in the Lord. But sometimes there's a place for us to understand the seriousness of God's word, isn't there? So I want to end on a positive note. The benefits of God's word. There was going to be a famine for God's word. Why is God's word so important? I'm going to take two verses for us. It comes from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We have four descriptions of the Word of God, and we have four benefits to the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. The Hebrew word there means an integer or a whole number. There's nothing fractioned. There's nothing missing. It is complete. It is perfect. It is wholesome. It brings health and it brings encouragement. The law of the Lord is perfect and it says converting the soul. The Hebrew word literally means causing the soul to return. It brings us back to what life is all about. It converts the soul. It brings life and hope and joy. Jesus said this in John chapter 6 and verse 63. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Everybody else was defecting. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave also? And Peter says this, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. The law of the Lord is perfect. It converts. It brings health and wealth to the soul. The word of God is faithful. The Hebrew word there is amen. We know what that word, it means faithful, it means true, it means trustworthy. I believe it. It is faithful, trustworthy. It declares it all to be reliable. And what does it do? It gives wisdom to the simpleton. Boy, I tell you, I need that. I'm naive about a lot of things. I'm easily influenced. But when you get anchored in the Word of God, you're no longer blown to and fro with every wind of doctrine. You know what you believe and why you believe it. It gives wisdom to the simple. It is right. The Hebrew word there is yashar. It means straight, forward, right to the point. God doesn't mince with his words, does he? It's just, it's upright, upright, it's fitting, it's proper. God's word brings joy to the inner man, rejoicing the heart. It is pure, it is clean. It is empty of all deceit. It enlightens the eyes. It gives sight. It helps us to see life as it really is. You read this word, and you know in the beginning God made them male and female. 
That gives you some wisdom. It enlightens your eyes. I'll read a quote from an old German scholar on this verse. Enlighten the eyes. It refers not merely to the enlightenment of understanding, but to one's whole life condition. It makes the mind clear and the body as well as the mind. It brings health. It refreshes. For the darkness of the eyes is sorrow, melancholy, and bewilderment and loss of direction. And those who hunger for God's word will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So let's don't find ourselves in a famine for the word of God. Let's find ourselves feasting on it this week, for it is the light and rejoicing of our eyes, as Jeremiah said. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this Old Testament nugget of the book of Amos, God. We live so far removed, such a different culture, different language, but God, we can become just as apathetic. We can become just as content. We can become just at ease in our religious experience. We can be just as rushed through our devotion so we can get easy, so we can get quickly to what we want to do. God, human nature hasn't changed. And God, we pray, God, that you wouldn't withdraw your light and your truth from us, but God, we would seek for it, we would mine for it as if we were mining for gold because it's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by it is the servant worn, and in keeping of your word there is great reward. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophets that spoke. Thankful, thankful God, for, for having your word so easily available and accessible to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.